Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the Message Trust. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing, check out our website, message.org.uk. Luke chapter 2, people. Are you ready? Next installment, part 4. So slightly concerning that it's taken us four weeks to get to Luke chapter 2. But um, we'll crack on. You know what, this is the most upside down uh, kingdom bit that I can find so far. There's so much in this that uh, I know I'm going to miss a load of stuff. So if there's some stuff that you spot in this text that you think, Sam, that is well worth including in future things, then uh, do let me know. I feel a bit like that game Spot the Difference. You know where you get two pictures side by side and you've got to ring what's, what's missing, what's changed. I feel like there's so much packed in this bit of text that I'm likely to not complete the whole thing. Let me just take a moment just to remind you of some of the words that the angel Gabriel had said to Mary because they're quite profound when we uh, study Luke chapter 2. The angel Gabriel has said this, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Favor with God. That's what the angel Gabriel said. Favor with God, you'll conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. He'll be given the throne of David. That's quite an important throne. And more importantly, he'll reign on that throne forever. His kingdom can never come to an end. And so if we then, you know, that's unbelievably epic. But if we then fast forward nine months to the point in which Mary is coming to the end of her gestation, I think that might be called, and, um, and the world is going to suddenly get crazy because all this stuff that's been spoken about Jesus is going to be kicking off instantly. But at the point when Mary is about to give birth, things go a little bit haywire. See, I've been trying to work out what Mary's expectations were uh, as she neared the end of her pregnancy. You know, I wonder what her, her birth plan was. Like, had she worked out how quick it would take her to get on a donkey to the local maternity unit? Had she picked out Jesus's like, first piece of clothing that he was going to wear? Had she thought about the birth plan? Because that is just about to go completely out of the window. She's carried in her heart all these promises from the angel Gabriel, and she went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and remember that that moment where she walks through the door and just says hello, and then out comes this wonderful prophecy that confirmed most of the things that the angel Gabriel had said. So I wonder if she was looking for what the favor of the Lord would look like. When does the favor of the Lord begin? How will the Uh, the great son of the Most High, be born? What is the pathway to the throne of David? I wonder if she's already begun to work out, now, you know, where I am now and how we get to the throne of David. That's a a Jerusalem thing. What's the pathway in which God is going to lead us to royalty? What does that all look like? The kingdom will never end. But how will the kingdom begin? And very unfortunately, and a little bit kind of 
uh, he's missed the point a little bit. Gabriel hasn't given her any instructions as to what's happened next. He does his bit, turns up, all white, big voice, strong words that he's practiced for a millennia, and then he kind of bogs off. He doesn't say, so, the day you're going to give birth, here's a few things you should know because they're going to not be quite what you expect. No clues about what might unfold, not an inkling of what may come. Surely, Gabriel could have just given her a few clues of the madness that would unfold. See, the, the world's superpower at the time, who is so important that he had a, a salad named after him, has, been, <laughs> has asked his officials to count the world. That's how mad he is. He's asked his official, count me the world. Okay, and maybe he meant only his world. His world is the Roman Empire, estimated to be a third of the world's population. Around that time, much smaller numbers of people, but still, possibly a hundred million people. That is a little bit bonkers. And they all have to be registered, so their names need to be written down and, and for their families to be understood and known. Now, each 10 years in our country, we get something called the census. This is the closest that we get. It costs half a billion pounds to administrate. 56 questions we were asked last time. But you can fill it in pretty much during an episode of Strictly Come Dancing, and you can post it on your way to work the next day. Their census was a little bit more complex. Everybody is ordered to return to their homeland, to the, the, the town of their birth almost. And just out of interest, who here is from Withenshaw? Put your hand up if you're from Withenshaw. So, so one person in the room would be allowed to stay. Everybody else in the room, at the point of the census, would have to get up and go to their hometown. Right now, I'd be off to Bridge North in Shropshire. It's beautiful. But many of us would be traveling for miles. I wonder who would have had to travel the furthest to the town of their birth. Tons of us traveling miles. And so that image that we get on the front of Christmas cards often of Mary on board a donkey being like that. It's like a lonely image of them in maybe the wilderness. Mary on board with Joseph gently dragging the donkey. You know that, that image? It's kind of fictional because it would have been mayhem. Like it would have been the worst bank holiday traffic of all time. A third of the world, well, most of those people, up in and go into the place where they are from. Terrible stuff. By the way, there's not even a mention of a donkey, just so you know. To complicate things further, the Jews have been told that they need to go not back to the place of their birth, but back to the place of their ancestors' birth. For Mary and Joseph, they're of the same family line. They're from the, the line of Judah, from the, from, the, from the lineage of David, which means for them, they've got this 100-mile walk from Nazareth all the way to the place where David was born, and that is in Bethlehem. David had died 500 years before. He wasn't going to be there, just so you know. But all of his descendants are going to be there. And that means 14 generations since David to the birth of Jesus, 14 generations of people are all going to descend on the tiny town of Bethlehem. 
It's like the Guinness World Record for family reunions. Norris McGuerter, remember him? He was there. He's that old. And he would have been given a certificate out to somebody to say, well done, you just broke the record. They all descend on Bethlehem, and it's chaos. So when we think about that nativity scene, you know, and there's a lobster and there's a crab and all that stuff, and we... And we, we at nativity, that displays has got like one inn, and it's full. Like, or maybe there's a couple of different inns that the child, who's Joseph, drags Mary on, on some form of donkey all the way, and they knock, and no room at the inn, no room at the inn, no room at the inn. To be honest, it doesn't matter how many inns there were, they were all full, and every nook and cranny, every tiny possible space has completely been filled. So it's not like they saw Mary and Joseph come in and thought, don't really like their type, let's not make any space. There just wasn't any space. They were probably one of the last people to arrive because she's massive, let's be honest. And they probably think she'll take up too much room because she's massive. So they're saying, let's put her somewhere else. There was no room left. I always considered, like, why, why did nobody give up their room? Like, if you saw a heavily, heavily pregnant lady who by this time is, not, is way past Braxton Hicks or whatever it's called. I know all my terms. I've been looking at pregnancies a lot recently. And um, gone past the point where just the little contractions, she's in full-blown... I'm not even going to go into graphics, you know what I mean? But this is getting serious right now. Why, when they knocked on the door and they see a lady going, (gasps) 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 did they not think, you could probably do with my bed right now? I wonder whether Mary has been concealing the whole thing. Whether she's done the 100-mile journey with things pretty much secret. You know, maybe she had a big baggy dress and she tried to keep everything concealed because she didn't want to draw attention to herself for a couple of reasons. One, she's still not a married woman. She shouldn't be pregnant. That's punishable by the law. So she wants to make sure she escapes punishment, doesn't bring shame on Joseph, her future husband. But also she knows inside her womb is the savior of the world, in his most vulnerable form. And so maybe she keeps him concealed. So my my little boy, who came to us by way of adoption, was concealed by his mother. I was showing uh, pictures to Meg the other day. What happens is, you know, I could show you a picture of his birth mom, full nine months pregnant, and you wouldn't even know. Your body even does a weird thing where instead of a bump this way, you kind of just go kind of slightly wider. She, you know, she wasn't super skinny, but she found a way of hiding and concealing what was within her, her tummy for one reason or another, which I haven't got time to go into. But Mary, maybe she hasn't concealed it. Maybe she has a lump, but she's trying to protect what's within her. So as much as they turned up at doors, you know, they were considered probably like anybody else from out of town trying to find space. Sorry, there's just no space here. No space for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If you've been to a Christmas morning service or a nativity play, you'll have probably heard someone say, is there room in your heart for Christ? There's no room at the inn, but is there room in your heart for Christ? 
Mary could not have imagined the chaos. This was not part of her birth plan. She didn't expect for Jesus to be born in a place where, 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 that she didn't know, amongst people she didn't know. She didn't expect disruption uh, like she was witnessing. But what's fascinating is that God outworks his plan amongst the madness. See, there'd been a prophecy 700 years ago about the Messiah. An amazing prophecy, which at the point when Mary has conceived the child in her tummy, I wonder if she's even considered the words of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, you, uh, though you are small amongst the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are uh, from of old, from ancient times. This is the, the, one of the prophecies about the Messiah, about the Christ that was to come. 700 years before he's even born, these are the words that tell us that the Son of God, the one from ancient times, the one sent of God, would be born, would be born in Bethlehem, be a descendant of David. Yet God uses an unmarried young virgin girl who lives a hundred miles away. Now, I don't think at any point Mary thought, I'll need to make a pilgrimage to Bethlehem to birth this child. She has not been living with the prophecy of Micah. She is not, she's not been instructed by the angel Gabriel to get a shift on because this is where the, a baby needs to be born. But at the exact time, at the perfect moment, God uses the decisions of a greedy, insecure world superpower to bring about his purposes. Isn't that wonderful? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, declares the Lord. I wonder how many of us have received prophecies or words of knowledge about our lives and it doesn't really match up to the reality of what we're experiencing in the present. I wonder how many of you have received words or scriptures or, or something that you know or believe or hold to as, as, as the stuff that your life is for, the purpose, the direction that you're going to end up with. But yet when you look at your here and now, it is so far from the reality that you're living. I feel like I've got to say, you've got to believe the words of God. You've got to believe what he said Elizabeth speaks over Mary and says, Blessed are you who believe the words that God has spoken. Blessed are you when you believe what God has spoken over your life, even if you look right now and think, this makes no sense. I had a prophecy not so long ago when I, I, I listened to it back and I was like, the lady was nuts. Uh, you know, obviously taking some kind of hallucinogenic before she talked to me, because it doesn't match up with reality. But give me six months time. And suddenly when I listen to it back. I'm like my word. And I wonder how many of you might find yourself in a place where you just can't see it now. You've got something maybe in your Bible. A piece of paper that you've kept. Some words. 
and it makes no sense yet. Hold on to the words of God. Don't panic. Don't fret. Don't stress. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. God works all things together. God works beautiful things in our lives. There's so much evidence for the upside-down kingdom in this passage. Even that, that prophecy from Micah about uh, Bethlehem being a small place, and out of a small place coming a great thing. I just absolutely love it. The world is dominated by a superpower at the point when the Savior of the world is found in complete obscurity. I love that. A guy who wants to count the world has got a guy being born into his world who is one day going to have all of us as his own. Who counts the very hairs on our heads born into absolute obscurity. Born in an insignificant place. Should have been born in Jerusalem possibly. But he's born in Bethlehem, a small town. The son of God born to ordinary people. The God of all comfort, born into discomfort. The God who would rule, born into oppression. No space for a king, the king of kings, to be born. Birthed into chaos, the one who would bring order. No royal crib for the king. He's laid in the feeding tray of cattle. Psalms 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The words spoken by the psalmist about God, but yet we find right now our God, the one who was robed in the majestic, is now robed in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. From royalty to rags. God's answer to darkness, sin and oppression and slavery was to send a baby. Not very clever. It's not the way of the world. It's certainly not the way I would do things. What can a baby achieve? A baby is helpless. A baby is super fragile. A baby is virtually immobile. They roll off beds at best. They are weak. They are vulnerable. They sleep for 18 hours a day. They wake up, they eat, they cry, and they poo. God's rescue plan was to send a baby. Surely there was a better way. Surely God had a better gift that he could send. Surely he could have sent a fully grown man. Have you seen the start of Terminator? Like, that's what I think I would do. Like, big beam of light, boom, naked man. <laughs> it would make more sense to send an Avenger, I think. Like, someone like Captain America, like proper, ripped, mighty for battle. Someone loves Captain America. <laughs> Lou is in the house. Not heard a cheer for Jesus, but Captain America... Imagine someone sent full of muscles, mighty for battle, armed and ready, eager and able, and preferably immortal. 
Surely he could have beamed down like all-powerful Jesus, ready to rock and roll Jesus. You know, here we go. I'm convinced that's what the people of Israel wanted in a Messiah. They wanted a warrior ready for battle, and yet what they get is a different kind of hero, like, like a not a hero, and is a vulnerable baby is presented. The one who came to help is helpless. The one who came to rescue needed protection. The one who came to feed the hungry needs to be fed. The one who came to deliver us gets delivered. You see how it's kind of upside down, this whole thing. The greatest person ever born and there's no fanfare. This is my favorite bit. Because we kind of build a nativity scene. One by one, all the parts grow. And, it, and they all kind of fill a big stage. And they've created loads of parts. There's angels, there's stars. There's a million stars. And uh, <laughs> all sorts of people gather on the stage. They fill and they make the nativity scene. But yet, in an ordinary town, to less ordinary people... A really extraordinary plan happens in the most ordinary of ways. There is no fuss. There's no fanfare. There's no midwives. There's no doctors. In fact, there's no help at all. Poor Joseph, I think, births Jesus, which is pretty cool, I have to say. But who wants to do that? No, no one, really. I was talking to someone at Urban Heroes, sat next to her, and she was, talking, she was saying that she'd got a phone call from her neighbor over the road going, um, oh, she was like supposed to be the driver that took her pregnant neighbor to the hospital and a neighbor went, you should probably come round now. I think, I think we're probably time. Went round to find a lat on the floor going, <laughs> and she had to birth it. And she said, thankfully, I'd done a bit of lambing as a kid. <laughs> a bit of lambing. Get, <laughs> get out. Uh, put your hand in, grab it by the legs. I think. Sorry, too far, too far. But, what, <laughs> but what's amazing is there isn't even any angels. Like all heaven's been waiting for the birth of the Messiah. Like it's the center point of all history. And the angels are busy. The angels have got another job on. The angels are in the field. You know, I, I, to be honest, I'd be expecting a five-piece harmony choir if that even possible I don't even know angels can do special things um, all in a row wearing the best clothes like if this was the moment if I was writing the scene Handel's Messiah Gloria, Gloria, you know <laughs> harps passion power but the angels are busy they're in the field with the shepherds this is upside down stuff right here because because the first revelation of the good news of the Messiah happens in a field to nomads, to nobodies. This is glorious kingdom stuff. Not to the rulers, not to the authorities, not to royalty, not to the religious leaders, not to the, the successful, not to those achieving. The angels are busy, instead of at the birth of Christ, they're in the field celebrating. 
they are like singing their hearts out. They're going wild. They, they can't contain themselves. It, like what happens is all the, all the shepherds are, are there doing their thing. They're the guys who are like considered the ordinary every day. They're working nights. They're the uneducated, the grafters, the grifters. They're considered to be a bit unworthy and a bit dirty. The scoundrels and the scruffers, the despised and the rejected, they're out in the field and Gabriel gets another one of his moments. He appears and you know the host of heaven is waiting backstage for their cue and Gabriel says the words, and then heaven lights up. This is our time. We're going to sing. You don't know what's going on right now in Bethlehem. You know, they're going wild, 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 singing, celebrating. The Messiah has been born. The Savior of the world is here. And they go crazy for him. They go crazy for him. To people who are undeserving. Not to the finest and the fittest, the richest and the elite, the successful and the achieving, but to the nobodies. God is so kind. God is so gracious. God is so good. And what's all the point of this? Why do I bother telling you? Let me land for you on the words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, uh, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Though he was rich, for your sake became poor. This is the gospel of grace. It's not worth forgetting that Jesus was not rich in human terms. Born into poverty. A guy called Darby writes this. He began in a manger. He ended on a cross. And along the way, he had nowhere to lay his head. Christ was not a rich man. That he might give up his riches. That you might have earthly riches. The riches he talks about is he became poor because he left the riches of heaven, took on human flesh in its poverty, that he might die upon the cross to give us the riches of heaven. It's heaven's riches that I'm living for. What are heaven's riches? They're not earthly riches, it's not fine clothes. It's not amazing food. I'm hoping they're there too. Not going to lie. I've heard about big houses. uh, But we'll save that one. The riches of heaven. What does it talk about? What do the scriptures tell us about what God is rich in? You know what? The scriptures tell me that God is rich in love. The scriptures tell me that God is rich in grace. The scriptures tell me that God is rich in mercy and rich in kindness. He's rich in those things. And Christ... Christ makes himself poor. In fact, he's born into a place of poverty, but his poverty is most clearly seen upon the cross where he is stripped of love, where he's stripped of grace, where he's stripped of mercy and he's stripped of kindness. He's exposed in the worst kind of ways. He becomes poor, his most poor, upon the cross that we might know the riches of heaven. It's love. 
Love in all its fullness. Mercy in its magnitude. Grace. Grace in its full extent. Kindness and the kindness of God. True poverty is found upon the cross. You know what? If Christ had been a person of earthly riches, we would have been distracted by them. And so it was important that he came with nothing to draw attention to the things that he wanted to give us. The fullness of God. The greatness of heaven as our reward. The reward of those who trust and give their life to him. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, not to be distracted by earthly stuff by the possessions of this world. Help us to fix our eyes on the prize, heaven's best, intimacy with you, Lord, to know the fullness of your love, your grace, your mercy, and your kindness. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to die in order to receive those things. Thank you that by believing in Christ, they're ours today. So, Lord, we say, fill us. Fill us. Make us rich today, Lord, we pray. Prosper us with heaven's riches, God. Prosper us, Lord, with love. Prosper us, Lord, with your mercy and your grace. Make us useful, God. For your glory and the good of others. Amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support or even get involved with one of our teams.